You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning once again, and at this point we get to come into God's Word and learn from it. So, again, take your copy of God's Word that you have, look up Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 31 through 39 really for the next uh, two weeks as we look at this great room, this great section. On your way to Romans 8, I've got one picture, I did a bunch last Week one picture from Oliver. God is sovereign and everlasting. Thank you, Oliver, for that. So appreciate those pictures that come in, and uh, hopefully some of you are drawing. Or if you don't have one, you're new here. We've got white paper on clipboards, crayons. Draw, kids. I love to see what you're drawing and what you're what you're gleaning. That's a big word for it. Right? That's uh, what you're coming away with from the sermon as you hear different thoughts and ideas even as I preach. And I'm thankful again that our kids, you're part of this preaching time. You're hearing God's Word as much as you can. And parents, those that work with your kids, for these next 35 minutes while I preach, thank you for doing that. That's not always easy. Your older ones get easier, but the younger ones aren't so easy. Thanks for working with them, to have them as part of our service. So appreciate that. All right, well, you're in Romans 8 by now. Verse 31, I'm I'm just going to read through 39. We'll read the the section here. We're going to really be looking at verses 31 through 34 today, but let's read it all and hear this great passage. What then, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray as we study this. Father, what words of encouragement you have given to believers who are on a pilgrimage of sorts, looking one day to truly be in your presence forever in everlasting joy. Lord, we thank you for this picture from Oliver today reminding us you are sovereign. And your sovereignty is not for a moment. It is everlasting. You are an everlasting, sovereign, 
God and our Father in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this gift and we pray as we study this particular passage, your spirit would use it in our lives to anchor our faith, to anchor us in who you are and what it is that you have done for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. There's a certain temptation that we could stay in these verses for a whole year, maybe longer. We could really, if you thought we, we were slow going through Romans, we could really slow it down and <clears throat> just sit here in verses 31 through 39 and just praise God for His grace and assurance amidst a life of trials and tribulation. Each week is new trials, new tribulation. Each week the truths of this particular passage are helpful to us each day, each hour even. And so there was kind of a preaching thought in my mind a little bit like, man, I, I, I want to preach this and I just don't really want to leave. I, I don't want to go on from here. But here is, as, we, as you think that, then thoughts, other thoughts follow. Here's the true, true joy of this passage. Because God is the one at work in you, in me, who believe in Christ, the truth is that you and I can hang out in these verses And for eternity, we will never leave these verses. And they're precious to many of you. Maybe you've never read them and you see them today. Maybe you've read them many times and they've they've been such an encouragement to you. But this passage, it's not only, you'll agree with this, it's not only true for the two weeks we're going to spend here on it. It's eternally true because it's built on the eternal and sure foundation of an eternal God and Savior who has reconciled us to himself forever. If it's an Airbnb like we've been talking about in chapter 8, this Airbnb or a great hotel room, a great place to stay, it's as if the checkout time, it will never come. You never have to go home. And the truths that we find here, they are true into eternity. And we need these truths like giant pilings or giant spikes that go into the ground to go down deep, to to anchor us in all sorts of storms and trials and tribulations that will come our way as we live this Christian life. And there are some great pilings, some great firm uh, rods in the ground here to anchor us to in those trials. And so let's explore Together, we're going to explore this wonderful room of Romans 8 in particular this week, verses 31 through 34, but we'll look at the the whole section as we go. I'm going to go through this section kind of question by question. Uh, If you count them up carefully, I believe there's seven in your English, at least in the ESV, there's seven questions here. Some are kind of sort of tied together, so I'm just going to look at five questions uh, in order that the the text is asking and then the answers to those to those questions so really four questions this week and then the final question which takes up verses 35 through 39 next week but these questions come up and the first comes in verse 31 and so let's read verse 31 once again where Paul asks what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us Often you might hear maybe a Sunday school ends this way or a sermon will end this way or some teaching you've heard before you know, will end in a way 
that says, now, now let's apply what we've heard. Let's apply it to our lives. I think there's a way in which chapter 8, what Paul is bringing out here, is kind of a ready-made application for us from Paul. Kind of in light of what we've been learning, in light of this teaching, what do we conclude? What do we apply here? Or in another way, how do we respond? That's kind of this question. What do we say to what we've learned? Now, some would say this is all of, all of Romans, maybe the whole letter. Maybe it's chapters 5 through 8, maybe just 8. But there's this idea here. You're going to be familiar with an author named J.I. Packer. He wrote a book called Knowing God. I used it when we went through some studies at Christmas time. And lo and behold, I'm going to reference him again, which, by the way, is another hint that if you've not read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I encourage make it a book you read this year. It is really good. But there's a chapter, really the last chapter, where he deals with Romans 8, and in particular even this section that we're in. He has this to say of the entire chapter. I like how he worded it, so I'm going to read it to you. A little longer quote, but if you have the chapter before you, chapter 8, he's just reviewing the chapter, and so this will be a helpful review. He says, The first 30 verses, chapter 8, set forth the adequacy of the grace of God to deal with a whole series of predicaments. The adequacy of the grace of God to deal with a a whole series of predicaments. He goes on to list those. There's the guilt and power of sin. It's verses 1 through 9. There's the fact of death. Verses 6 through 13. There's the, in verse 15, there's the terror of confronting God's holiness. Or there's the weakness and despair in face of suffering. Verses 17 through 25. There's paralysis in prayer. Verses 26 through 27. There's the feeling that life is meaningless and hopeless, kind of where we've been the last couple of weeks, verses 28 through 30. Paul makes his point by dwelling on four gifts of God given to all who by faith are in Christ Jesus. The first is righteousness. So verse 1, there's no condemnation. The second is the Holy Spirit. That's verses 4 through 27. The third is sonship. We see that in verses 14 through 17, verse 29. And the fourth is security, now and forever, found in verses 28 through 30. And so Packer helps us with this background, and he sets up what Paul is going to conclude here. And this first phrase basically forms just a summary statement here in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, I think the if here has the sense of since, since God is for us. That truth alone, that God is for us, is an amazing truth. You realize who this God is. The Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth and the universe. Time, everything. That's who's for us. And yet, in Romans, have we not seen that God should be anything but for us. He should not be for us. We have gone our own way. We've not sought for God. Paul has shown that none, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, none have done what glorifies God. In that phrase, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But here is a promise of God that He is for us. And thankfully, this promise doesn't rest on our power to stay in His good grace. It rests on God's grace toward us for His glory alone. A couple verses. I already read one as we started this morning. Psalm 98 verse 1 proclaims, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done, He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Or John chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says there, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. By God's grace and by God's mercy, he is for us. Which leads then to that question, then who can be against us? And depending on the context, this, it could either be, I think, a who or a what. I think it's either or. It's just what, who, in any way, what can be against us? We may, we may feel like life is against us, or a sin-cursed world is against us, or even our own sin is against us, or the uphill walk that it is being a Christian and following Christ. And yet amidst what seems to be against us, even that, we saw at verse 28, God is working all things for good for us, and hence God is for us. Leon Morris says here, he says, the Christian's confidence is in God, not in anything he himself does, and for all eternity he can rely on God's gift. Question number one, what shall we say to these things? If the God of heaven and earth is for you, then who or what indeed can be against you? But how do we know? What, what assurance do we have that God is for us? Now we look at verse 32 and the next question. The question actually comes at the end of verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we know that God is for us and that nothing will come against us? Paul presents the Son, Jesus Christ. God is for us and ultimately being for us, for His glory, that God did not spare even His own Son for this. It's a wonderful truth. If we just, I think, take time to think on it, we can, if I'm like you or you're like me, we can read passages, just read them very quickly. I've heard this before. I've seen this. Yeah, he didn't spare his son. You see what you're reading? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's what God did. That's grace. In Romans 5.8, we're told this, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so we're reconciled to God by the Son. We, we who are God's enemies, have been brought to terms of peace and joy, granted full access as sons and daughters of this King. And God did not even spare His own Son. But it says He gave Him up for us all. You've got the words, but gave him up, maybe in your version. The giving up, it's really the same word Jesus is going to use to tell his disciples in the Gospels that he's going to be delivered up to be crucified. So there's this giving up, delivering up, maybe your version says. Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. It's pretty interesting. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, and that same idea, given up, delivered up, how? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Indeed, the truth here is sinful and lawless men crucified Christ on the cross. But behind this evil stands God, who, in fact, gave him up for us all. But then just who are those? Who's the all? Whom has the Son been delivered up for? It's a specific group, isn't it? It's it's us. Paul's using that Language, the first person plural, us. There's we. And if you look in the context, we see it's those foreknown, those predestined. It's a, there's a definitive giving up. It's not a, not a potential here, giving up, meaning this. You know, the, those to whom God has gave the Son are those for whom He died, that He might actually save them, gave them up for us all. It's not a potential Savior. It's a sure and a definite salvation for the elect of God. And at the center of it all is the cross. That's where it centers on. Again, Packer helpfully points this out. He says, The New Testament view is that the death of Christ has actually saved us all. All that is to say whom God foreknew and has called and justified and will in due course glorify. God's definite plan was at the cross, but it didn't end there. It extends to all, to all who respond to the gospel, the good news of what the cross cross of Christ accomplished. And so if God, for His own, gave up His very Son for us all, the question then, another question, will He not also give us all things? Will He not also... With Him, graciously give us all things. It's the last part of verse 32. If God did this by such an extreme and infinitely wonderful act of love and grace in the offering up, the delivering up of His Son into the hands of lawless men for His crucifixion, then the logic here is nothing else can be withheld from those children of God. If that, then this. Which then we ask, so what are the all things that Paul mentions? What are these all things? What did he graciously give us 
all things. Prosperity, preachers, could have a great time here. Certainly, these good things, these are riches. That's what we get, riches here. We get a life of ease. We get better health. Is that what the all things are? Just come to Christ and then everything you want is yours. This view, this view has everything to do with seeking our own desires and passions. It's got nothing to do with one who has been regenerated by the Spirit, who's born again, who has come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ to say, I follow you. Riches, wonderful. Health, great. I'm following Christ no matter where to death if that's the case. This is not giving us all things in that way of riches and health. Packer, again, helps us see a different perspective. He says, for Paul's all things is not a plethora of material possessions and the passion for possessions has to be cast out of us in order to let the all things in. For this phrase has to do with knowing and enjoying God. I'm going to start that phrase again. We want to get this. For this phrase, God has graciously given us all things, has to do with knowing and enjoying God and not with anything else. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. You believe that truth about your God? And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. So Packer asks, what higher assurance do we want than that? He notes here, it's interesting in our Bible reading, going through the beginning of Exodus, that when God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he gave to them the commandments. Exodus 20 has those for us. And the first one, the first commandment is really built upon the good deliverance of God, bringing them out of slavery, kind of a reminder that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's who I am. And then God gives this command, you shall have no other gods before me. Packer's making this point that the God who delivers, and we could say by the giving up of his son, it's the same God who gives all that we need in light of following him in godliness and obedience. We shall have no other gods because our God graciously gives us all things to follow him. We don't need other gods, little g, gods. Every day and every hour of that day, whether rich or poor, sickness or health, you're hearing marriage vows there, our covenantal God, he is working all things together for good, for his own, to know him and to live for him. Packer's title of this chapter is The Adequacy of God. He is adequate for what we need. Even when things don't look so good as we've looked at in the past in our lives. But maybe another question as we move on. Will we still face charges? Is there a chance of condemnation? That's what verses 33 and 34 answer. Look at 33 first. Another question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Paul uses a courtroom term here. Who shall bring any charge? Courtroom term to ask this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, one commentator sees this, the, the bringing of the charge against God's elect, sees it kind of referring to this, the final, the, the last judgment. That, that may be in view here, perhaps, but I tend to think here it's, it's even just a general question. That he, he, maybe the nagging question, is it possible in the future, whenever that is, for someone to charge the elect with wrongdoing? The certainty in this verse is no, this shall, this shall never be. And you see, two, they're connected. There are two connected reasons emerge out of this verse. That number one, God elects. And number two, connected, those God elects are those who God justifies. It's the first time, at least from what I can tell in Romans, where Paul refers specifically to the elect of God. Context, though, I think would say that the elect of God are the same ones he's just talked about in verses 28 through 30. Those whom God for, has foreknown, whom he's predestined, whom he's called. And then we see that connection to justification. It's not merely just the chosen people of the Old Testament, Israel. It's the Jew and Gentile. It's all who are justified by faith. And, and further, Paul's use of us repeatedly seems to include here all the believers that he is writing to in Rome. But sinners cannot elect themselves. And I thought of this, it's not a perfect illustration, but even in our, our modern day elections, candidates can run a campaign to get elected, but ultimately the choice is not theirs, and hopefully that's still a good system and there's all sorts of rabbit trails you go down there. But they, it's, it's a campaign to get elected, but ultimately it's not their choice. I think we do well to remember our own calling to Christ from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. So I want you to turn there. It's not very far at all. In fact, just the next book to your right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we think of the elect of God and the calling, is this something we earn, something God saw in us? These words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 are helpful, starting verse 26. He says, Therefore, consider your calling, brothers. So this is to Christians. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord the grace that is amazing the amazing grace of God is the sovereign choosing in God's eternal counsel to set apart for himself to predestine to call a chosen people 
and elect people who will never be charged. And they will never be charged because, secondly, those whom God elects are those whom God justifies. If you're back in Romans 8, it's God who justifies. And that's the focus here. It's not on us. The focus is on God. And in the courtroom of God, His own will never be charged again. If we have something to do with this, our hope is on shaky ground. Praise God, here it is God who justifies. And Paul asks further, really our last question of today in verse 34. One more. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Some see the who, this first question here, who is to condemn? They see the who as referring to Christ, as in, shall Christ Jesus condemn us? Kind of that question. And that that could be the case. I I tend to see just, again, a more general question, who of anybody will condemn us? Is there any condemnation? Perhaps it's the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, or, or our own condemnation, or others. And the answer to this, or the reason we will not stand condemned, is what Paul lays out here. No condemnation for those in Christ. Our own punishment, our own condemnation ought to bring death, does bring death, bring the facing of real and eternal suffering and punishment and destruction away from the joyful presence of the Lord. But the first verse even of this chapter, remember back there? It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Isaiah 53, 5 answers why. The punishment that brought us peace, it was on Him, Christ. And by His wounds, we are healed. That is that Jesus died. He was condemned in our place as a substitute. That's the substitutionary atonement. In our place, He died for us that we might be imputed His righteousness and He was imputed our sins. So the threat of our being condemned, the threat of our condemnation, it's, we don't answer that threat by, but, but I ask Jesus into my heart or, or I believe, even though we, we are to believe. The answer to the question of our being condemned is on what ground Do I stand before God without condemnation? And the only answer ever and for eternity is Jesus Christ is the one who died. It's Him. And He not only died, the text tells us here He was raised to life. And in His resurrection, where is He now? At the right hand of God. And so John Murray comments here, He says, since he has all authority in heaven and in earth, no adverse circumstance or hostile power can wrench his people from his hand or separate from his love. And then, in kind of this crescendo of hope here, in this verse, just as the Spirit intercedes in our praying, we saw that, so Jesus intercedes for us. Who indeed is interceding for 
us. Again, it's a third for us. If God is for us, gave him up for us, interceding for us, personal nature. Hebrews 7, verse 25 puts it this way. That consequently, Christ, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's both a present intercession, it's presently, and it's eternally, it's lasting, always living. And so Paul here, he's building truth upon truth to show, again, that, that kind of that beginning phrase, if God is for us, then really nothing and no one can be against us. Next week, we're going to look at question number five, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you can look over that in the week to come. Meditate on the truths there as we come then to the final summary, really, of chapter 8. Let me just come back, conclusion, uh, some questions. Who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if if there's something in life that we that that seems seems unbelievably good, like something happens, it's just it's unbelievably good. Our our all too common phrase is, you know, you you see an offer, probably get an email. If it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. You know, we see that phrase. Kind of a response of caution. Boy, that sounds too good to be true. It probably isn't true. It's probably false. Maybe there's past failings of what seemed so good, and then it, it turned out it just never the good never materialized. Maybe for some of you, this passage can have that sense. The truths of this passage maybe seem like they're just too good to be true. So maybe they aren't. Is God for me? And nothing will ultimately be against me. I can stand before God, not facing any charges, no condemnation. It's this passage that flies in the face of of our doubts and our fears. It is true, and it is eternally good. Why? Because its foundation is built on the one at Calvary, on Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Maybe today you've come here and you admit yourself, I'm condemned in sin. You sense your guilt in your own heart. You know there's guilt there for your sin. I just want to encourage you today. Abandon your sin. Run to Christ, the Savior. I believe in you. Save me, Jesus. I want to follow you. Will he save you? He will for all who call on him. And then may all of us in Christ simply say in response, praise the Lord. There's an older hymn that goes like this. I thought of it when I was thinking of Jesus condemned on our behalf on the cross. The lines go, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. What's the response? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. 
sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless. We, spotless Lamb of God, was He. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew His song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. All glory and majesty and honor and praise to You, our Jesus, our Savior. And for eternity. Lord, would you help those hearing this, help those wrestling in doubt and fear to drill down, really to acknowledge the anchors you drill down by your grace from this passage and the hope that is here for sinners who look to Jesus Christ. Lord, encourage us all with this passage. May we never get far from it. May we live our lives in light of it. That no matter what, no matter what circumstance, no matter who, if God is for us, what can be? Who can be against us? You've given up your Son for us. Will you not also give us all things? Thank you for this gift. I give you the praise. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Bethany Radio a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.